Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me now by turning to the book of Philippians chapter 3. This morning, we're studying Philippians 3, verses 4 through 11. And our message today is titled, A Declaration of Dependence. On July 4th, 1776, representatives from the 13 colonies in North America assembled together and signed the Declaration of Independence. Our country's forefathers were separating themselves from a motherland whose government had become corrupt and was unwilling to make the necessary changes. And they were declaring to the world, we are independent of British law, government, and authority. Well, nearly 250 years later, and we are living proof of the prosperity of that decision to be independent. But what worked for a country in this particular situation would be detrimental to a Christian in their relationship with the Lord. If we had to sum up the book of Philippians in one word, I would say the book is about joy. Paul teaches on joy. He models joy. And he warns against things which seek to rob us of joy. And one of the greatest opponents of our joy in Christ is when Christians try to live independent of Christ. And that's what Paul is warning us about in this passage. See, Paul planted this church years before the moment that he's writing this letter But now he's in a Roman prison. He's unable to leave, visit this church, give them encouragement, give them warning in person. And he is deeply concerned. His concern is growing by the hour that a group of false teachers known as Judaizers are going to to creep into the church and lead the church astray by teaching false doctrine. And the reason he has this concern is because he has seen these false teachers do this time and time again in nearly every church that he's planted. And while they haven't made it to Philippi yet, he is anticipating their arrival. So in verses 1 to 3, he warns the believers to, in verse 2, watch out. Watch out for these false teachers who want to encourage independence. Self-reliance, works-based relationship with the Lord. And his reason for this warning is laid out for us in today's text, where he makes this main point. Self-reliance is a death sentence to a healthy relationship with God. Have you fully surrendered your life to His grace? Well, there's no better way to know that than by sitting under and responding to God's word. So friend, if you would now join me as we turn our attention to the best part of this morning's message, which is the reading of God's word. Philippians 3, starting in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, 
Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Let's go to the Lord quickly in prayer to ask for His help to understand His Word. Lord, we just have one simple but needy request in this moment. It is, please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Our first point this morning is blue bloods. Verses four to six. Have you ever heard that term, blue bloods? Well, in sports, and in particular college basketball, the term is used to describe a school that is considered to be among the most elite programs in the country. And oftentimes, this includes schools like Duke and UCLA and Kentucky and the Hogs. No, unfortunately not. But these three schools are always in these conversations. These schools have a resume of success in their field. Well, Paul makes a case in this section that he was a blue blood of his field. He was the best of the best in regards to his religious piety and hereditary birthright. He starts off this section in verse 4 with, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So what's this confidence in the flesh talk all about anyway? Well, in verses 1 to 3, Paul warns the church to watch out for these false teachers who trust in themselves and their own works to ensure a right relationship with God. He's saying that though they claim to be the people of God as a result of their Jewish heritage and religious observance to the law, they are deceived. But instead, he says, you Gentile Christians, you are the people of God. That's his point in verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision. In in other words, all those who have trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins are the covenant people of God that were promised in the days of Abraham, thousands of years ago. And in particular... He says it is those who worship by the Spirit in glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. And it's that last phrase that he uses there in verse 3, who put no confidence in the flesh, that he picks up on 
in verse 4. See, friends, that's the heart of the matter with these false teachers that he's addressing, that he's warning the church to avoid at all costs. These false teachers see themselves as the people of God because of their works, because of their heritage. They see these two things as qualifying, qualifying them for being in a right relationship with the Lord. But they're wrong. And Paul's going to prove it. Now, how does he do this? How does he prove his point? Well, he proves his point by providing his resume that dwarfs theirs. He's like a blue blood school having won many national championships, and they're like a community college with a JV team. He says in verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul does not want the Christian, he does not want you and I to place any confidence in the flesh. Now, what does confidence in the flesh mean? Well, with the way that he describes it in verses 5 and 6, we could say that it means this. It is any attempt to justify oneself before God based upon the works, heritage, personal history, or personal righteousness of an individual. Any attempt to try and declare ourselves right with God because of something that we contribute, because of something that we bring to the table. But don't our most natural instincts attempt to create an accounting system like this all the time? Don't we create a ledger and put on one column good things and then put on the other column bad things? And then don't we naturally try to suggest that those items and good things must be why God loves me and those items and bad things must be why God appears not to love me? But here's why we can't do that. Here's why that's a futile endeavor. (laughs) The reason is because essentially what Paul's saying to us here in verse 4 is, I am the most outwardly righteous person you have ever met in your life. But it does not move the needle one inch towards having a right relationship with God. Friends, Paul had it all. He had the pedigree and he had the performance. In verse 5, he talks about his pedigree. He says this, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, in our context and culture, none of those things really mean much to, to us, do they? If Paul stood before us today in our context and culture and said these things, we, would, we might say, okay, I don't suppose I see the connection between how you get that that's the reason why you have a right relationship 
with God. But what he's telling us is that he was born into an exclusive group of people. A unique people group. And on top of that, he was born into the most, the most faithful tribe of people within that people group. And on, on, on top of all of that, he says, my parents were zealous to obey God in all things. Even when it came to my own life. And so I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I take this sign, the covenant that God had told my people to take. So in other words, here's what Paul's saying to us. He's saying, I'm the poster boy for the kind of person that my people considered to have all the makings for a right relationship with God. In our day... We do this all the time as well, don't we? When we grow up in a home that doesn't know Christ and we come to faith, we oftentimes feel so far behind in our Christian progress. And then we see those who grew up being taught the Bible from an early age, learned all the catechism, memorized scripture, went to church every Sunday, and we think, well, that's why God is using them and not me. Because they came from a godly family. They have a rich Christian heritage. But friends, if Paul's unmatched heritage didn't position him even one inch closer to God than the average person, we have no reason to think this for ourselves. God's not constrained to use only those who have the best circumstances and pedigree. He uses anyone. And everyone he chooses despite the challenges. You could say it like this. The Lord never tires in plucking people out of their sin and equipping them for his purposes. God is not a God that takes the path of least resistance. In verse 6, Paul addresses his own performance. It was first his pedigree, now he's addressing his performance. He says this, as to the law... A Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, Paul is saying that he genuinely lived his life according to God's word. He was a teacher of God's word, which means he was a Pharisee. He was a strict observer of God's word. He was, he was zealous to obey God in his word, which led him to ignorantly persecute the church. Standing at one Christian's death, holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen to death. He was righteous, he says. He was righteous according to the law. Meaning, he lived his entire life, his secret life and his public life under the governing of God's word. Outwardly, Paul was blameless. Here's how we might say it in our day. He's a good guy. Paul's a good guy. He's a great guy. He's the best guy that I know. Okay, so 
Not even the best among us in our day would dare to say this about ourselves, would we? Wrong. (laughs) Actually, during the times that I've done initiative evangelism, one of my favorite questions to ask people is this. If you died today and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? You know what 9.9 out of 10 people say? They say, because I'm a what? Because I'm a good person. Because my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. But here's the problem with that. If the Apostle Paul, who lived a strictly religious life that would put any of ours to shame, a strictly religious life according to God's law, if he couldn't even say that his performance positioned him one inch closer to a right relationship with God, what hope do we have? You know what Paul's saying here in Philippians 3? He says, My righteousness far surpasses even the righteousness of Mother Teresa. I strictly obey God's law all the time. But it never positioned me one inch closer to having a right relationship with the Lord. So if it's not our pedigree, If it's not our performance that enables us to have a right relationship with God, what does? Well, we'll find the answer to that question in our second point, which is this. Knowing versus knowing about. Verses 7 through 11. For the first 20 years of my life, I only knew about God. I can genuinely say that for the last 12 years, they have been spent in knowing God. That's exactly what Paul is telling us about his life as well. He wants us to see the transformation that takes place in his life between verses 6 and 7. He wants us to feel how strange it is that he went from being motivated by one set of standards to radically being convinced of another altogether. Friends, do you remember Newton's first law of inertia? Here's a throwback question for you. Colton's like, no, I don't. Do you remember Newton's first law? Of inertia. He says that every object will remain in motion unless it is compelled to change by the action of an external force. Well, what was that external force in my life? What was that external force in Paul's life? If you're a Christian this morning, what was that external force in your life? Every object that's in motion, stays in motion. We're going one way. We're going with Paul towards this behavior, performance-based model of acceptance before God, of having a right relation, 
right relationship with God. But then if you're a Christian, something happened that changed the trajectory of your motion, of your trajectory, of your life. What was that external force? It was Jesus. Jesus stopped Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts 9 and saved him by his grace. If you know this, if you know this story, it's an amazing story. If you don't, I want to encourage you to go back and read it starting in Acts chapter 7. The story of Paul's conversion is remarkable. He was, as you already know from his resume, he was zealous for God's law. He was a Pharisee, which means he was a teacher of God's word. But we also learned something else about him. He was a persecutor of the church. He thought that the church, he thought that Christians were distorting the true teaching of the nature and character of God and he sought to rid the world of them. He was on the front lines leading an army of people to kill Christians. It's radical. It's crazy. He was killing Christians. He killed a guy named Stephen. There's a A text in the book of Acts that says that he was holding the coats of those who were throwing stones at Stephen that killed Stephen. And as he's on his road, on this road to Damascus, on horseback, on his road to Damascus, seeking to kill more Christians, something happened to him. Radical happened to him. Jesus appeared. (laughs) Saved Paul, opened his eyes to see that he was a sinner, that his pedigree and his performance had done nothing to get him one inch closer to a right relationship with God, that he stood as an opponent of the gospel. God saved him by his grace. He imparted to him the gift of faith and regeneration. Paul believed upon Christ Jesus and he became a herald, a proclaimer of the gospel for the rest of his life. And our New Testament is filled, it's filled with pages that the Apostle Paul has written. Jesus stopped Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts 9 and saved him by his grace. Friends, Jesus has to stop every one of us on our road and save us by by his grace as well. And this one encounter with Jesus radically changed Paul's life. So much so that he says this in verse 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now what does he mean by whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ? Why is he talking in accounting terms? Gains and losses. I'll be honest, friends. I struggle with accounting. (laughs) Just, you want to go back in time, you can ask my accounting professors. I had two of them because I failed the class twice in college. You can ask my wife. You can ask anyone who's been involved in accounting in our church. And because I struggle in this area, I need help understanding why he's talking like this. Paul, what are you doing entering the world of of accounting? You're losing me. 
Well, without distancing us too far from accounting, Paul is introducing us to the world of God's economics. He's introducing us to the upside-down economy of God where we give up our life to gain the highest prize of knowing God. This is his point. It is impossible to simultaneously trust in ourselves for salvation and trust in God's grace for salvation. Paul's doing something here that I call conscious counting. He is consciously moving all the good deeds from the gains category over into the losses category. For him, that meant his pedigree and his performance. What Paul once considered to be foundational reasons for having a right relationship with God, he now considers as losses. And actually, he goes on to say they're not just losses, he considers them rubbish. Verse 8, which means this, that they are useless. An undesirable material subject to disposal. <laughs> Friends, do you see what Paul's doing here? What he's doing here is fundamental to our faith. He's refusing to place any confidence in having a right relationship with God based upon something that he brings to the table. He's refusing. To base his relationship with the Lord on something that he contributes. He once placed his confidence. Now he has thrown all those things that he had put his confidence. He's thrown them into the trash. He doesn't just consider them losses. He moves them into the losses category and then he empties the trash can. He's thrown it all away. So the verse 8 and 9, so that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The first of two things that I want us to see from, the, from this verse is this. First, gaining Christ means gaining his righteousness. Gaining Christ means gaining his righteousness. Now here's what's fascinating about this, friends. If you and I were to have met Paul before Christ saved him, you might have thought, are you sure you need to be saved? Are you sure you needed saving? You're the best person I've ever met in my life. You, like of all my friends... You're literally like the one guy who seeks to do everything right. You do things by the letter of the law. You don't run stop signs. You don't blow red lights. You don't speed. You don't get angry with your wife. You don't get, you don't get angry at work. Like, Paul, what do you mean? Like, are you sure? Like, you needed saving? 
But Paul realized something which we all must realize. And that is we are all bankrupt without Jesus' righteousness. Friends, we are bankrupt. Stay with accounting for a minute. Zero dollars, zero cents. Bankrupt without the righteousness of Christ. Hmm. If you want to try to deposit your good works into the accounting system of your right relationship with God, you're going to give to that bank and you're going to give to that bank and you're going to give to that bank and you're going to give. You're going to work your fingers to the bone and you're going to go visit the ATM expecting to see commas. There's commas, I know it. I've been working hard on this thing. Right relationship with God, good deeds upon good deeds. I'm doing everything right. I'm going to church on Sundays. I'm going to the prayer meetings. I'm trying to be nicer to my wife. I'm doing all these things. I'm visiting ATM. What do I got? What's my account balance? I'm pressing it for the first time in my life. I'm not anxious about that balance inquiry. Press the button. Zero dollars, zero cents. What's going on? What happened? I'm doing these things right. I'm depositing. You call the bank. Hey, what's going on, guys? Well, you've missed the fundamental error. Without the righteousness of Christ, we are bankrupt. Righteousness. Okay, let's get a definition. What do we mean by righteousness? Righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of God. There is no more important thing than to be, than to be made right in the eyes of God. If Paul realized for the first time in his life on that Damascus road, decades before he wrote the book of Philippians, or after he wrote the book of Philippians, he realized at his conversion that he brought nothing to the table, that nothing qualified him to be right in the eyes of God. Here's how we can say it simply. Paul was a sinner in great need of a Savior. Here's the good news, friends. No. Here's the great news. Here's the great news. God sent that Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. The same Paul who wrote Philippians says this about the person of Jesus Christ in a book that he wrote called 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, for our sake, and put your name in that word, our, for Matt's sake, he made him. Who's the him? Christ. For Matt's sake, he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ, Matt might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the very thing we lack to have a right relationship with God is the very thing that He provides for us in the person of Jesus Christ. The second thing I want us to see from this verse is gaining Christ cannot be earned, but must be received by faith. Faith in Jesus is when we fully rely and trust in the person and work of Christ alone 
for salvation. Friends, we demonstrate faith all the time in our everyday lives. The object of our faith is the thing that we're calling into question now. We demonstrate faith all the time. We demonstrate faith as we come into this room and we take a seat on those chairs. We are, we are, we are trusting that the engineering was done right. We're having faith that when I sit on that thing, it won't fall. When we place our faith in Jesus, we're doing something quite similar. We're putting our whole being onto Him. We're putting all of ourselves onto Him. We're making a decision to fully trust in Him alone for salvation. So friends, are you beginning to see the difference between knowing, knowing God and simply knowing about God? If all we have is knowledge about God, then we will be found living a life like Paul. Paul knew about God. You know what was required of the Pharisees? They would memorize the entire Old Testament. These guys had committed to memory. If you would have poked Paul with a needle, he would have bled Bible. He knew God's Word. He had His memory bank full of information about who God says that He is. But listen, friends, if all we have is knowledge about who God is, we're going to be found living a life like Paul before Christ. We will be found placing our confidence in ourselves for salvation, which does this. It alienates us from ever being in a right relationship with Jesus. So friends, here's a simple question. How can we then know God? How can we grow in knowing God? Well, the first first way is this. First, we have to become Christians. We have to become Christians. In Matthew 7, the first book of the New Testament, verses 21 and 23, Jesus says these words. This was my life before I came to faith in Christ. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father, only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, the point is this. We cannot base the genuineness of our Christianity on our works, on our gifts, on our contributions, or our serving. All of these things are fruits, not roots. We gain confidence in the genuineness of our Christianity by our confession of Christ. Our salvation is never Jesus plus something that we bring. And Jesus plus our contribution. Jesus plus my attendance. Jesus plus my giving. Jesus plus my sacrifice. We give our bodies up to be burned. But if we don't know Christ, we gain nothing. We have nothing. 
Our salvation is never Jesus plus something we bring. It is this. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's our salvation. Friend, I think this is the most appropriate time to ask you a question. Are you a Christian? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? You think about faith. Man, faith. I'm trying to figure out what does faith mean? Have you fully relied upon Christ like you are relying even on that chair you're sitting on in this moment? You cast all of yourself onto him. Have you turned from your sins? Placed all of your faith in the personal work of Jesus? Well, the good news this morning, the great news of Christianity is that there's not a system, and another accounting system, <laughs> praise God. You start losing guys like me. No, it's so simple. You want to become a Christian? Here's what you do. You turn from your sins right now. You place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You say, Lord, I'm being convicted of my sins as we speak. I see my sin as if I've never seen it before. I feel shamed. I feel guilty. I feel condemned. I'm trusting. I trust that you have made a way for me to be right with you, not on something I've done, based upon Christ alone. And so I turn, I'm trusting in him entirely. Please receive me. Please forgive me. It, amazing, right? The gospel is the most complex and the most simple message in the world. Second way we can grow in knowing God is this. In order to to grow in knowing God, we must spend time with Him in prayer. In order to grow in knowing God, we must spend time with Him in prayer. In Ephesians 3, another book that Paul wrote, Verses 14 to 19, Paul introduces a prayer for spiritual strength. He says this, he says, For this reason I bow my knees, that he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and to know, there's that word know again, right? Right? A-N-O-W. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When Paul wanted to impress the love of God that surpasses knowledge onto this church, he hit his knees. Listen, friends, the Bible is God speaking to us. And prayer is us speaking back to God. Friends, that's how all healthy relationships work. There is communication from both people. When we spend time in prayer, we begin to get to know God in a way that studying Him could never accomplish. And then thirdly, in order to grow in knowing God, we must share in Christ's suffering. Now, I don't have to take a poll this morning to know that this is probably the least desired option. But it is one that Paul never skimmed over. Look at how he says it to us in verses 10 and 11. He says that I may know him 
and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul didn't view his suffering as an interruption to his relationship with the Lord. He views it, he views his suffering as a means of grace that God was using to make him like Christ, to make Paul like Christ, to conform him into the image of Christ. That's what he means by by any means possible in verses 10 and 11. Friends, why could Paul have this kind of confidence in his suffering? Why could he, how could he have this kind of hope in his suffering? Well, this phrase provides us the heart behind his hope. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Friends, listen to this. Jesus' resurrection means that all of our suffering has an expiration date and guarantees that he will make all things new. He will restore beauty from the ashes of the things that have been burnt up in our lives. He will restore hope to hopeless situations. The resurrection of Christ changes everything. It changed Paul's relationship with suffering. It's an invitation for us this morning as well for the, resurrection, for the resurrection to change our relationship with suffering. We don't, we don't applaud at suffering in and of itself. We don't welcome suffering in and of itself. We don't invite suffering in and of itself. It's a means to an end with the hope that at the resurrection of the dead, when Christ comes back from his, for His people and raises us all up, that all the things that have been wrong, all the damage caused by sin in our life, all those things, all the sickness, all the death, all the calamity, all those things will be made right. That's the only thing that can change a person's relationship with suffering. That can instill hope. Friends, the greatest joy, the greatest privilege of our life is to know and to be known by God. We can experience the seven wonders of the world, but all it takes is to have one encounter with Jesus to put into perspective the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friend, today, would you sign a declaration of dependence upon Christ alone? Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, we, we love your word. We love your word. It's amazing how your word can pierce our hearts, can go as deep as to divide our hearts, our thoughts, our, our intentions. And Lord, here you just lay out the intentions of our heart. You lay it out bare. 
You give, us, you give us the grace to see from your word right here that our best deeds are but filthy rags. Would you invite us to, to look not to ourselves, but to look to Christ? God, you know that that requires supernatural faith. That requires the gift of faith. So God, I want to pray two prayers that for all of my Christian friends that you would please Stir up fresh faith in our hearts that we would believe afresh in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, that we would believe that afresh. And then I want to pray for my non-Christian friends, God, that you would right now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, using your word, impart to them the gift of faith to see their great need for a Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name.